1: on fx specifically about the euro usd pair we're going to talk british pound sterling and lots of other topics here uh, brent
2: welcome hey ash how are you doing
1: i'm doing well i had a little bit of uh, trouble uh connecting there for a minute uh, i could hear it's you right. and i think i think our audience could hear you as well
2: yeah i would uh i was mildly panicking but probably uh <laughs> not as much as you were panicking <laughs> yeah
1: i couldn't get in i could i could hear you and i was like damn it twitter can't get in so it's great to be here with you it's great to be hosting today boy we couldn't have planned this any better in terms of timing lots happening right now in the fx space lots happening in global macro so much to talk about brent before we get started tell us a little bit about your background what you do at spectra
2: markets sure um so i started trading fx in 1995 at Citibank. um I spent a little bit of time trading my own money, about five years in the Nasdaq bubble. Uh, I worked as a PM at a hedge fund for a few years. Uh, but most of my career, other than those eight years, I guess, <laughs> um, was working at primarily commercial banks um, as a market maker, a chief dealer um, in foreign exchange. And I also ran some some FX businesses, but um, I never was really that into the management side. It's just like a different job. So. Um, now I'm at spectra markets. And so what I'm doing here is I kind of have two jobs. So one of my jobs is covering hedge funds and banks and selling uh, spot and FX derivatives. And then the other job that I have is running a company called spectra markets, which is more content focused. And so I write my daily, which is AMFX. I write a crypto piece. I write an educational piece. Um, and so There's kind of like two pillars, one trading and and selling FX, and then one writing about global macro.
1: Well, it's interesting, Brent, that you should mention crypto. I spend my time uh, these days largely out in crypto land, but this is a story that's just too big to ignore for anyone, obviously. The uh, euro-dollar pair breaking through parity, a huge story. By the way, I'm looking right now in my Bloomberg terminal. Looks like uh, some traders have a sense of humor where where they got their stops set. Looks like euro-USD trading at spot 9969 right now. Uh, Give us a little bit of context on where we are. This obviously is a story 20 years in the making. Tell us a little bit about your take on what's happening right now in euro-dollar.
2: Yeah, so it's interesting. I, like, if you zoom in, there are a lot of people talking about Jackson Hole and, and Powell, and you know, kind of a run-up trade into into that. I kind of feel like Powell's more of a red herring, and the real story is just the the EU and UK energy crisis. And like, I had a, a chart in my piece today about the EU trade with non-EU countries, and you know, a big part of of the euro's strength in, in when it has been strong has been the German export machine, you know, recycling to or selling, selling products, high value, high value products to uh, China and then doing that with somewhat cheap energy primarily purchased from Russia. So that was kind of like the flywheel of German export growth. And then, so the North exports and then the South is, tends to be deficit deficit. Like the Southern countries tend to generate deficits and so, in ye olden days, before 1999, the way that that would play out would be that the Deutschmark and, you know, sort of like the French franc a little bit, would be strong, and then the Lira, the Italian Lira and, and Spanish Peseta and that would tend to deval a lot because, and that's how the things would kind of find equilibrium, was it, the exporters um, would, would tend to have strong currencies and the importers would have weak currencies was kind of how it went round and round until 1999, then the the euro came out. And then it sort of became this kind of like hybrid currency where you have strong currency countries like Germany and then weak currency countries like Italy trying to be combined in a place where, you know, a lot of people speak different languages and you're trying to apply one monetary policy where job mobility is not that great. And, you know, there's a lot of issues that are pretty well known around the euro. But it always kind of held in well because um, there was a massive current account surplus, especially. And so that was always kind of like the support mechanism for the euro. So now, like we're down at one double people are saying, oh, should I buy the dip? Is this the place to like, plan my purchase of a home in Portugal or whatever? Um, I mean, forget about Portuguese real estate. But in terms of the currency, I would say that the, the risk here is that it's a structural repricing. Of the flows. So like these trade, trade flows are real flows that you see when you sit on a desk. Like, you know, corporations come in and sell hundreds of millions of euros or buy hundreds of millions of euros. And so Germany was using euros to buy natural or to buy uh, energy from Russia. Now they need dollars to buy whatever, you know, LNG from K- Qatar or whatever, wherever they're going to get the, the energy. Um, so I think this is a pretty epic structural story. And honestly, the EU isn't the only one. Like, if you look at the trade balances of of many countries, they're absolutely ripping one way or the other. Um, So, like, Japan used to always have a current account surplus. Now with oil above 100, they have a deficit. And I mean, I could go on and on. But almost every country in the world is either getting a positive terms of trade shock or a negative one. And the epicenter of that is Europe and the UK.
1: You know, you set that up perfectly. Talking about the structural challenges that we see across the eurozone, geopolitical challenges, obviously energy a major factor in that. Uh, we should also say we've seen continued contraction in euro area PMIs this week. Give us a little bit of a sense on what drove the news flow this week to finally push us below that parity line.
2: Well, I mean the news flow it isn't one specific item. It's more that energy prices don't back off so. The, the waves, if you look at a chart of like Dutch natural gas, it basically has been like spike, come back off, spike, come back off. And the last huge spike was in March. And this time it's more like, uh, like a grinding, grinding move higher. It's it's a completely different dynamic. So it would be like you, know, you look at something like GameStop or whatever, and it spikes to 500, but it's at 200 like three days later. That's what Nat Gas was doing in Europe, and now it's not doing that. It's It's just like... Boom, up to whatever three hundred, and then it's sticking there, and then it goes up a little bit more every day, and that that's the same thing as you know UK energy electricity prices. They're they're all correlated because you know it's somewhat of a closed system. So the really the catalyst is just this ongoing pressure. This keep getting worse and worse news on the energy crisis, and I think a lot of people thought it was things would get better somehow. Like I don't really know what that how would be other than peace in Ukraine, obviously, would be the obvious answer. But um, since most, I think, experts kind of are looking at sort of stalemate into 2023, the only thing really that's going to help Europe right now is better weather, and the weather's about to get worse. So that, to me, means, like, this is a sticky problem that's probably going to be an issue right into, like, spring of 2023. That's part of why I don't think – the, I mean, of course, there's all bounces and people get over and all that. But I, I don't think you necessarily want to just like say, OK, it's at one double O. I'm going to buy it because it could we could be at the end of the year. We could be at ninety one cents or something or like zero point nine one.
1: Yeah, we should say that generally speaking, the consensus forecast seems to be lower on the euro dollar pair. I was reading earlier, I think it's Morgan Stanley has a ninety five cent uh, call out on euro uh, on, on euro Eurodollar, uh, you know, uh, structural headwinds really across the beer, talking about uh, some of the challenges that we see, uh, as you've articulated very well. You know, I, I'm curious, how do you frame this? You know, I, you mentioned GameStop uh, for a moment there. And, you know, I was talking to some friends, actually, before we started this call. And I said, you know, look, I'm very mindful of the fact that there is a difference between, uh, for example, um People speculating on meme stocks or NFTs versus what's happening here in currency markets. This is just deadly serious in terms of its impact on human lives in the Euro area, in Great Britain. This is significant deterioration of purchasing power. Folks on fixed income, pensioners, retirees, especially hard hit. What are the impacts here? Are there any feedback loops, specifically positive feedback loops, that can start to accrue to the downside as these types of situations begin to deteriorate Brent.
2: well we're actually kind of in that now so um yeah generally i would say the energy price is the most important thing like this creates a lot of issues for the central bank um specifically it's inflationary so like Euro going down does nothing good for the ECB. They they actually would like the Euro to be much higher and be helpful for them because the, the lower the currency goes, the more inflationary it is. And the UK has the same problem. Um, ultimately, like energy prices are what matter the most. But the weird thing that we're seeing now is so generally, like the relationship that is the most stable, like there's, there's all these kind of cross-market relationships in FX. And the one that's most stable throughout history, or at least my history back to 1995, is the relationship between interest rates and currencies. So generally, investors want to buy um, currencies that have higher yields because you can use leverage to make money. In. And generally, if you're a bond investor and you're trying to beat a benchmark, you'd rather have the 5% yield than the 0% yield. So you know, that's why like, people generally don't want to invest in JGBs in Japan they'd rather have something that has a higher yield. And so generally when yields go up, people buy the currency, and if you overlay yields and, and a currency, you'll generally see them kind of going up and down together. It's not a perfect fit, but it's kind of like a, a general truth that interest rates anchor the value of the currency. But when the shit's hitting the fan, um, specifically in emerging markets, what you'll see sometimes is that the, the market sells the bonds and sells the currency, So basically, yields start shooting higher and the currency sells off at the same time, which is that's kind of like a doom loop scenario where you're getting higher rates, which is bad for the economy, and then lower currency, which is a little bit stimulative, but is inflationary um, and also makes your imports. Now that you you had this current account surplus or trade surplus, now you have a deficit, and that deficit costs more and more money to buy because your euros are worth less and less. So it's interesting now, if you if you look at St- – Sterling's the biggest one in, in this example. But normally if you look at like Sterling back to, say, 2010 and you overlay the, the interest rates, like UK interest rates, say 10-year gilts, they kind of go up and down and up and down all together. And then all of a sudden it's like, whoop boom. So UK rates are, are going to the moon right now and Sterling's at the lows. So like if you imagine like a, just a complete decoupling – Um, And that's super unusual usually you see that in EM credit um, or sorry in EM FX and usually that's a symptom of like the credits in trouble like so people are selling the bonds and selling the currency now I'm not I don't think there's a read through that UK credit is an issue um, but I'm just highlighting that that's a, a super unusual situation where basically the more the Bank of England hikes the worse it is for the economy and the more people sell sterling which is not the usual kind of transmission mechanism.
1: Yeah, by the way, I should say I've actually just tweeted out the chart for uh, Great Britain pound USD right now, British pound sterling. It's the 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 full max chart here I've just tweeted going back. It looks like on Bloomberg to uh, 1971, so a little over 50 years of data. Obviously, it's just a hideous chart.
2: Actually, you know what? if I, I don't know if I can do this. This is going to require some crazy tech skills, but let me see if I can hold on. I might be able to put this chart that I'm talking about here in that. Should I, I'll, if I put it in the spaces thing, will people see it or not really?
1: Yeah, I think our, our producers can uh, can bump that up to the top so that it's actually in the
2: gallery view. All right. So I just replied to the to the Real Vision spaces thing. Um, so I just posted the chart. And so that's that's the interest rate differential in the UK against Sterling. So normally those things should be going up and down together. And if if people can see it, I don't know. But if you can see it. The blue line and the black line should be moving together and they've completely decoupled. So what that tells you is that essentially it's like stagflation, right? It's high energy prices are forcing the Bank of England to hike. But the absolute last thing in the world that the UK economy needs is rate hikes.
1: Right. Yeah. So talk, unpack that a little bit in terms of this challenge, this, you know, that we we see this. Sort of tension here in the US as well, but it seems to be a big challenge that the BOE f- is facing uh, compared to the Fed in terms of walking between the Scylla and Charybdis of inflation. Obviously, their July UK PMI print at 10.1%, a hideous number. Uh, and then simultaneously, when you see economic activity slowing, how do central banks attempt to square that circle, resolve that paradox, Brent?
2: Well, yeah, it's tough. So, like, obviously, what the Fed tried to do was just like plug their ears and say it's transitory um but it didn't work and so the the it's a much bigger problem though in the uk and eu than here because like imagine if instead of gas being four bucks a gallon it was 23 bucks a gallon like that's kind of like i think that would be a fair guesstimate of how crazy things are over there like people's if your heating bill was like 400 pounds it's it could be 2300 pounds this winter So the shock to real incomes is absolutely massive. Um, And really, like, there isn't a clean solution to it. Because the question is, like, okay, if the Bank of England hiked rates by 300 basis points, like 3%, which would be a gargantuan move, is that actually going to reduce energy prices? Like, at some point, it will. So, like, the Fed hiking rates has an impact on crude oil demand and all around the world because they impact global rates and then they also impact US demand. But when you have a supply shock, it's not clear like what level of demand, how far would demand have to fall and what would that mean for UK GDP before you're actually impacting the, the price of these things because essentially it's the supply driven by, the, by Russia and Ukraine, right? So essentially what they have to do is hike as slowly as they can while maintaining credibility because like, they're supposed to have an inflation target. So if they're not hiking, it, they're kind of just like, you, you can't just always say it's transitory, but actually in this case, it probably wouldn't be a bad strategy for them to just say that because rate hikes aren't gonna really do anything, right? They're not, they're, if all the inflation is energy driven and, and say like UK CPI, somebody said it'd go to 18% based on energy prices you what are you trying to accomplish with rate hikes at that point um but at the same time that's their mandate it's like if you're the guy with the hammer everything kind of looks like nails and what else you start hitting stuff right
1: but what's the flip side of that Brent? in terms of what starts breaking if you start to see this very rapid tightening of monetary policy in the uk what are the risks what could that
2: break Well, the risk is a massive recession. So, like generally, even in the U.S., when oil prices double, you have a recession, right? So, like if you look at what was going on in '08, oil was going to the moon. There were they were still hiking till the very last minute in '07. Um, In a lot of countries, I mean, ECB hiked in '08 because of oil. Um, Essentially, what you get is just central banks hiking into really weak economies. So the breakage, the break point just eventually comes when you've broken the economy so badly that energy demand collapses and like to start shutting down. And then eventually there is a point no matter like in any supply shock, well, give or take, not, not to the, not to the extreme, but generally there is a point where you can crush demand sufficiently that supply can catch up. Right. And, and that's, that's essentially what the fed's trying to do they're trying to generate some kind of like recessionary type of thing to allow supply to catch up in in various industries um but the question is with something so like in in the us it's different because it's a, it was across the board supply shock in right. the uk and it when it's so idiosyncratic i don't know it's the question is like where would demand have to go very low obviously so The the impact is that they end up crushing the economy and then eventually they win and you probably want to own guilts at that point.
1: Yeah, sounds like the risk there, Brent, is a Pyrrhic victory. By the way, just to add a little bit of color around what's happening in the UK right now, I should say uh, PMIs are essentially, this is the composite flash PMI out today, uh, Tuesday, August 23rd. Flirting as close as you can to the line of contraction looks like fifty spot nine in August, uh, a decline from July fifty two spot one, where you saw very modest growth. Uh, again, right up at the line of contraction there, Brent.
2: Yeah, and I mean the U.S. isn't much better, right? Like the the that PMI today on the services was forty four, which is pretty extremely low. Um, there's a lot of strange stuff going on under the surface, though, too, because. The inflation is, is causing this weird disconnect where things that are real, like GDP is real, right? Like you, Real wages, things like that are obviously collapsing because inflation is so high. But then things that are nominal, like retail sales and stuff like that, are still doing okay. So there's this really weird disconnect now where consumer sentiment is horrible because inflation is 10% and you're, raise, you're, you're getting a raise of 4%. So you're suffering from a six percent loss of purchasing power, but then when the data come out, a lot of the data look half decent in the U.S. Not the survey data, but the the economic data, because you know if nothing happened, the pure like just having eight and a half percent inflation means that all the numbers went up eight and a half percent. So it kind of is like this weird tailwind for U.S. hard data, but then the soft data, the survey data, is in the toilet because everyone's very nervous about. All different things. So consumers are worried about inflation and, and falling real real incomes, and then companies are worried about you know the the wave of wage growth that's probably about to come, and the squeeze that that could put on profits. Because the one thing is with inflation disentrenched in people's minds, now people are starting to ask for raises, right? Like people are going on strike and stuff. When's the last time you heard about like strikes all over the place? And people want want their wages to at least go up 5% to catch up to the 9% inflation.
1: I noticed we've got almost about 300 people in right now on this call. Uh, I just wanted to ask you one more question, Brent, before we open it up to questions. I noticed we have a lot of good friends here in the audience. I see uh, Professor Plum. Mike, if you'd like to come up and join us, of course, you're welcome to. Um, but let me ask you this one question first before we start pulling people up on the stage, Brent. And that is this. you know, One of the dullest-sounding acronyms Uh, with the greatest level of import of any story that I've seen sort of not really get covered here in the U.S. is something called DPI, Transmission Protection Instrument, coming out of the ECB. Um, You know, to me, as I read those documents up on the ECB website, it sounds like effectively what the Transmission Protection Instrument is, is number one, unlimited YCC, yield curve control. They effectively have the mandate now to control yield across the curve. And number two, spread control to manage the spreads between highly divergent economies to attempt to harmonize those yields uh, in the marketplace. I'm curious, as we begin to open up this conversation to questions, please raise your hand if you have a question and you'd like to come up on stage and ask Brent. But I'm curious, Brent, as we transition into questions, what's your take on the transmission protection instrument and its import for the euro?
2: um my take is that it's bullshit um so uh, the euros actually the sell-off in the euro really started to accelerate when that was released because essentially what they're trying to do is something that's impossible they're trying to hike rates in germany keep rates low in italy and preserve the value of the euro all at the same time and that's just like that's not possible so the the whole if you read the criticisms of the euro um, as a construct, as a, like, as a model or whatever in, in 1998 when it was coming out, the biggest argument against it is that you need different monetary policy in radically different countries where there's no worker mobility, right? So like in the US... Yeah, United and also th- radically, different,
1: radically different supply and demand dynamics, radically different labor markets, radically yeah, different... I mean, I mean, export,
2: export countries, like some of them yeah. are exporters, some are importers... So the TPI was designed to basically say, like, if Italian rates, for example, go up too much, we'll just buy a whole bunch of Italian bonds and we'll push the yields back down. Um, It just it doesn't make any sense. At some point, there has to be a release valve somewhere. So the problem is, okay, that works fine if you have no inflation constraint. But if inflation is 10 percent, you can't increase the size of your balance sheet by buying BTPs because then that's pushing directly against what you're supposed to be doing, which is hiking rates and tightening financial conditions. So it's it's like the Fed trying to, you know, have, a, you know, dual mandate, but really they have like nine mandates, right? Like they want equity prices to do this. They want credit to do this. We need emerging markets to do this. Racial equity in Boston, you know, like they're trying to do so many things that it's not possible for one. It, it becomes like this, Freakish Rube Goldberg, sort of central planning exercise, where you're trying to do all these things, and it's just not reasonable or realistic to try to do them. So the TPI, I think that almost from the second it came out, people were just like, yeah, this this will work if inflation's low, but if inflation's high, you can't do all those things all at the same time.
1: So so let me ask this follow up. Uh, when you say you can't do all of those things at the same time, What does that mean? I mean, what's the potential risk here with TPI?
2: Well, the risk is that they they try to basically do do three at once. Right. They're going to have to hike So in in a normal like inflationary environment, they would be hiking rates. But then the hiking of the rates, because Italian rates are more are higher beta, so they move faster, means that German rates are going to go up a bit and Italian rates are going to go up a lot, which then creates like a refinancing issue for Italy. So then they're going to go in and buy Italian bonds, but that increases the size of their balance sheet. So then what are they going to, That's that creates easing in the economy. So then what are they going to do, hike, hike rates more, you know, sell German two-year bonds? Like the, There's no way to hike rates and increase your balance sheet at the same time that makes any sense to any investor. So at some point, people are just going to be like, okay, I got to get out of all this stuff, especially Italy, because... The ECB is the only buyer and one day they're going to have to stop buying. I mean, I mean there are constraints on how much they can buy as well, which uh, they can change those rules, which they have many times. Right. But there are constraints, you know, they're to, to the extreme, they can't buy all the BTPs in the world um, because at some point they're going to break the capital key, which is the, essentially the rules of which countries they can buy and how much.
1: Yeah, but the, those rules have been on 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 those goalposts. It seems have been on wheels for the last you know decade, and so you know probably since the two thousand eight era. So you have to wonder at what point. Uh, Do they reach that limit? I mean, look, we could have been having this conversation in a not necessarily over uh, Twitter spaces, but we could have been having this conversation in a cafe uh, in the year 2000 talking about the BOJ, and it just continues and continues and continues. And so, you know, there are those who are making this argument or at least raising the question, you know, is this the Japanification of the euro area? And if so, what are the potential ramifications of that? in terms of the real economy.
2: Well, I mean, what it's essentially leading to is fiscal union at some point, right? They're doing this sort of like slow motion dance towards fiscal union. And then at that point, it does look a little bit more like Japan where they can just kind of do whatever they want because Germany owes the money. Italy borrows the money and Germany owes it, has to pay it back. Um, But the, the political ramifications, I guess, of that are that it's just like this slow motion pressure cooker at some point. Is there a party that comes into power in Germany that says like these target two balances, which are like the the balances that one country owes the other um, are a joke and we don't want this anymore? Like, is there a point where that happens? Maybe, maybe it would never will. But um, essentially, it's just like you just keep on raising the pressure of this somewhat unstable system. And the only way to stabilize it fully is fiscal union, which I don't know if Germany actually wants that. Maybe they do.
1: Yeah, but I mean, it does also sort of raise these questions. We, we we talk about this, and obviously this is a sensitive conversation, but we talk about here in the United States, how we have red states and blue states. You know, this idea of, of full fiscal union in Europe, when you have divergent, divergent nations, people with very different historical backgrounds, uh, people who speak different language, pe- people who have very different value systems. I mean, it really is a, a challenging thing to get one's head around uh, in terms of how that fiscal union, banking union, Uh, these deeper ties in Europe could potentially work. Um, I know that's a lot to think about. So I just want to uh, ask the question if anyone in the audience would like to come up and join us here on the stage uh, and ask Brent a question. Again, I see lots of friends of Real Vision here in the audience. Uh, Hello, Mike. Hello, Moritz. If you guys would like to come up uh, and ask a question or make a comment uh, or just in any way move the conversation forward, we'd love to have you. Uh, And anyone else, of course, if you'd like to come up and just ask Brent a question, uh, please raise your hand and we will get you the microphone. So Brent, as we wait to see if anyone uh, wants to jump in here, uh, give us your thoughts on, on on how that begins to play out and talk a little bit more of the Target 2 balances. By the way, I'm looking at a chart. I'm going to see if I can tweet this here. Uh, what you see, obviously, when you look at this Target 2 uh, imbalance chart or balance chart, I guess, depending on how cynical you want to be on a given day, uh, you see this sort of enormous divergence. You see the, the bulk of the, uh, obviously, indebtedness moving toward Germany. Uh, and as you look at the numbers that are, The lines, I should say, that are below that line, you see the indebtedness uh, to the so-called core of the eurozone. Talk a little bit about the implications for those target two balances, Brent.
2: Well, I mean, the only implication is it's a slow motion move to fiscal union, which is kind of happening behind the scenes. So essentially, Italy becomes like the too big to fail type scenario where they owe Germany so much that it's not optimal for them to allow... You know, BTPs to go to ten percent or whatever. Um, th- so that solution is slow motion creep towards fiscal union, and the other one is some kind of political fracture either in Germany or Italy. And it looked like we were getting that a couple times in Italy, but then the stakes are so high that really, like the anti-Euro vibe, I think kind of got scared away by 2012 because that then it looked like much more existential um but it's just kind yeah. of like this hanging sort of damocles that's going to always be there um and the reason and that's the reason why like every time there's a crisis or something bad happens you see more and more um burden sharing which is like you know germany saying okay we'll guarantee italy's debts or you know we'll help pay for this stimulus or whatever and so that i like that seems to be the natural way the risky way is that the political wins in germany or italy changed dramatically and then one of them says like no mas
1: yeah and that's really an interesting point particularly the way you frame it there where you have the scenario of opting out at the top or crashing out at the bottom either one of those is a political possibility uh, as we have this conversation here today looks like we've got some questions from the audience uh hawkeye pierce i didn't realize alan alda was on twitter go ahead hawkeye with your question for brent if you can hear me
0: yeah, thanks. So just very briefly, I think, uh, you know, we typically FX markets are super forward looking, especially G10, you know, like three, four, five year discounting. So I'm just curious about what his thoughts when you look, when you think about euro breaking parity, what does it really mean? I mean, it doesn't seem like it would mean one year, you know, one bad winter because of a nat gas shortage. It seems bigger than that. Uh, thank you.
2: Follows FX markets very closely, Brent. Yeah, I agree that it's if if this was something where the the cure was around the corner, like, you know, there's two obvious things that will help. One would be peace or some kind of agreement in Ukraine, which does not seem to be on the table. And the other one is better weather. And we're about to enter the weather getting worse. So but then to your point, if this was just like a one off thing, it's going to be a bad winter I don't think the market would care that much. Like, so yeah, the trade balances have collapsed in say Germany's trade balances collapse, but if it was going to rebound next year, as you kind of imply, then Euro probably wouldn't be down here. The problem is that it's not obvious what is going to resuscitate that, that trade balance. Um, And then the other thing that's sort of like looming in the background, but the market has trouble focusing on multiple themes at once is that the China, slowness in china and and slowness in in china real estate that's not really great for germany either like there's been a tight connection between german and and chinese growth over the last you know since china entered the wto so you have a little bit of a fracture there um so to me it's the market's pricing that this is going to be a persistent issue that where's germany going to get all the energy to to build whatever they want to build the answer is not very obvious
0: Okay, do
1: you want to come in with a follow-up?
0: No, I mean, <clears throat> I, I agree with that. I, I guess one, um, if we can meander a little bit, is, um, you know, Aussie. O- Aussie's really, uh, you know, <clears throat> given the commodity boom, given this kind of narrative that uh, we should be in a long-term commodity boom, uh,
2: why do you think Aussie's so weak here? So this is, yeah, this is a, a- Big explanation, but I'll try and keep it short. But essentially, this, the long story short is in the last commodity super cycle, higher commodity prices led to a lot of capex and a lot of new mines, you know, trucks, jobs, all that kind of stuff. But this time, most of the infrastructure is already there. So the higher prices are essentially just leading to higher profits for the miners. Um, but their transmission to the jobs market and to capex has been pretty minimal. So it's essentially like the the all the stuff's been built, and they don't really need to. Even if copper doubles, the the capacity to then go and like build a bunch of new mines and that isn't isn't really there as much. Um, so the the short answer is that higher commodity prices in say 2012, the transmission was direct, like straight to capex, straight to the jobs market, straight to domestic inflation. Now, um, if anything, it's actually there's some weird stuff going the other way because there's a lot of foreign dividends and stuff that get paid out that actually um, essentially are making like the companies and the investors do really well, but it's not really flowing through that much to the domestic economy, not nearly like it did.
1: Great question, Hawkeye. Thanks for joining us. Really, a uh, really interesting take. I also wanted to bring up, uh, Jay Zal Murray. Uh, Jay, of course, is someone who is in the, uh, FX space as well, and also former Bank of Canada. Jay, go ahead with your question, please, for
0: Brent. Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, so I guess my question is, uh, Brent, I know that you recently, um, took profit on a short, on um, Euro USD, um, and I'm actually not quite sure, uh, I, I missed a bit of this, uh, of this segment. So I don't know if this is something you already discussed, but um, I kind of uh, got a request from one of the traders uh, today to take a dig into EuroCAD. Um, I did a bit of reading, uh, looked at kind of some of the the, the fundamentals, the, the PMIs are, are looking pretty bad for, for Europe and they're declining. Uh, Canadians still seeing a little bit of weak growth. Uh, inflation's doing a little better in Canada, as it's declining a bit, whereas it's going up uh, in uh um, in Europe, and then we got the kind of the divergence in central banks. Uh, took a look also at the, at, you know, the text, the, the sentiment, and the positioning. It looks like you know uh, positioning is shifting uh, a little bit more bullish on CAD and not so much on on Euro. Uh, and as well, like I looked at this GS sentiment index, uh, it was also going the same direction there. So I guess my question to you is like after reading that, you know, I I became pretty bearish Euro CAD. Um, I know that you recently took profit on on your short. What would kind of take you to, to put that short back on and take another stab at that trade? Great
2: yeah, so I do think we're trending. Um, but like, you know, because I know you read my stuff. Um, I tend to trade bigger themes, but on shorter time horizons. So part of that was like coming into Jackson Hole, I didn't really want a position because my feeling generally is that um, and this has been the case into the FOMC meetings is that the dollar tends to rally into the Fed events, but it gets a little bit too excited and then the dollar sells off after. Um, and I, I kind of feel the same way about Jackson Hole that I honestly, I think, first of all, like I'll preface it by saying, I think Jackson Hole is is a red herring. Like I don't, I think the European energy crisis is the story. Um, however, as a someone who trades somewhat short term, um, I need to factor in Jackson Hole. And I think the risk honestly is that just like the FOMC minutes, um, and the FOMC meeting is that the, the level of hawkishness isn't as high as people think the, the fed, I, I don't want to get it like a huge thing about the fed, but the, once the feds at neutral, it's just like, everything just sounds different, even though like the policy may still be tightening into restrictive territory. You just don't move as fast into restrictive territory. So it sounds more dovish than it was when you're going from like zero to three. Um, and so essentially, I don't want to have the position through Jackson Hole.
1: What, what are those risks as you see them, Brent, from Jackson Hole? What are you going to be looking for specifically? Is it something with the language? Uh, what are the themes that you're looking at there?
2: Well, uh, to me, the main theme of all the central banks now is how restrictive are they willing to go? Because usually there's kind of like two phases, right? One is you get to neutral, which a lot of the central banks are close to or above, like RBNZ is above neutral. Depending on what you think neutral is, um, and it's a layup for the central banks to go to neutral because, like, it was insane that below neutral for the, like since last November. Um, but then you start getting into like the long and variable lags conversation, which is okay. We've already hiked like 250 basis points, so now do we want to rip it another 150? Like into restrictive territory probably doesn't make as much sense. So I think it's there. And by the way, what's, the,
1: what's your benchmark for the neutral policy rate? Uh you mentioned this idea of, of going into restrictive territory. Where do you see that number?
2: Well, it's it's different for every central bank. Like the Fed and even the individual governors of the Fed have different opinions, but it's somewhere right. around three or three and a half for the Fed. Um it I mean, opinions vary wildly, but are widely, but I would say let's say three percent is a, probably like a reasonable place to, to put it. Um so That's why the language has seemed kind of dovish, because they're not just going to rip it in 75 basis point increments once they're in restrictive territory. They're going to be a lot more careful about it, especially when QT is about to double in September. And that can operate as sort of like a a synthetic rate hike as well.
1: Yeah. I want to read a question that's just come in uh, to me from uh, Nicholas uh, Glinsman. He's having some challenges here with uh, Twitter being what it is. He's not able to put in a request. But the question is I'm listening to Brent, but can't put in a request. Uh, Brent mentioned that there is something more than just euro risk. Then I would posit that this break of parity and the euro outlook has been negatively impacted by the move to deglobalization, which will negatively impact the surplus mercantilist countries. Just like Germany, interesting take from Nicholas. Uh, what's your call on that, Brent? Any guidance that you can provide?
2: Sure. I mean, that's hundred percent consistent with what I'm saying because you know the trade balance collapsing. It's not just about energy. It's also a little bit about China and like globalization actually peaked in 2008. If you look at like percentage of GDP that is trade, um, and obviously now it's become a much much bigger of a theme. Um, you know, post 2020. Yeah. So, I mean, I agree 100% that the German export miracle is over. Um, we're probably at like peak Germany in terms of the at least the way we used to look at how Germany, you know, competes around the world. Um, so, yeah, I agree 100% that if you're a marketless country and global trade's decreasing and you don't have access to cheap energy and you're one of your biggest customers for luxury goods is like, you know, shutting down real estate companies, that's bad. It's just like a, a really, there's, there's so much going on. That's bad. And normally like there, you'd have a few scenarios. I wrote a I I wrote it. So I'm a big fan of the, of exploring the alternative hypothesis. And a couple of weeks ago I tried to write a bullish euro piece just to, like to get it out of, out of, like, just, just, just to try. And by the time I was done it, I went short euros because <laughs> it was like impossible to write a bullish euro piece right now. Um, so, yeah, I agree.
1: Uh, real quick, I know we're about to wrap here at the top of the hour. Some of our folks who are uh, who are at Real Vision Producers have to have to jump to do some other things. But I, but I wanted to ask, you know, you mentioned, uh, Brent and Jay, this divergence between the inflation rates uh, when I think it was Jay actually he was talking about his analysis of EuroCAD and saw. That, you know, obviously Canada has a lower rate of inflation than in the Eurozone. Is that simply a function of net producers of energy versus net consumers of energy? Or is there something else going
2: on there? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's basically how easy do you have or how, what's your access to energy and how easily can you get energy? So usually, yes, that means like U.S. is actually a net exporter of crude, for example. Um, so if this was all happening ages ago, it probably would have been a different scenario. Um, But I mean, yes, the biggest driver of headline inflation by far is energy. And then there's a lot of other nuances, like in terms of a lot of it actually comes down to the way that different countries calculate um, uh, real estate prices and and housing and rent. Um, So a lot of that is just more like kind of inside like statistical nuance. Um, Right. But anyways, yes, energy is the number one driver of inflation differentials around the world. Yeah.
1: I know we're about to wrap here in a couple of minutes, but uh, Nanaimo Trader, welcome back. I know you've been waiting patiently to ask your question for Brent. Uh, what's your question, Nanaimo?
0: Yeah, thanks, Ash. Uh, thanks, Brent. Always nice to get out of the log cabin here in Canada <laughs> and actually talk <laughs> trading. I'm um, Brent, I'm, I'm curious. I, I haven't looked at the carry trade for quite a while, but I can remember back in the day that was quite popular, and we would get these... Um, shifts in the FX market that could, could last for years, really. Then I'm a, which
1: area are you referring
0: to? I'm just thinking, well,
1: in? I was going to say, I normally, I would look at the JPY, but yeah. I'm actually wondering if, if we're going to be in a, in a stage where the U S dollar will become the, you know, where, where everybody's hanging, holding on to dollars to make the interest. Interesting and if, question.
2: Well, and, so that's been part of why, like the dollar's been the all weather currency, right? Because it's, it's had the yield, had the tech inflows. And then so when things are good, people buy dollars. But then when things get bad, people kind of view the dollar as a safe haven as well. So the only time historically that the dollar really sells off generally, like thematically, is when you have synchronized global growth. And so if the U.S. is is outgrowing, which it was for ages, or the world's going into recession, which it looks like it is now, those are both dollar positive scenarios. Um, in terms of the carry trade specifically, it pretty much died when everyone went to the zero bound because there was no difference in rates around the world. Um, And now it's kind of reemerged somewhat. Like that's why some places like Mexico and Brazil haven't sold off that much because they're actually, they hiked early and their real rates are high. So there is dabbling in it. But the problem is with the carry trade is it's always the trade off between uh, carry and volatility. So what you want is like high interest rate, but not too much volatility, right? Because if, if the currency collapses, it doesn't matter if you're making 10% if the things drop in 4% every day. Um, and right now we're in a pretty high vol environment. So the carry trade isn't really that popular. Like I said, people have dabbled a bit. in. So when, when you think things are looking okay and, and the world is, is like looking relatively safe, you'll do it in currencies like India or any, anywhere where there's a real yield. But the problem is when you're worried about global growth and things like that, the carry trade doesn't make as much sense because the higher yielding currencies generally are more leveraged to the global economic cycle. So you end up losing more on the currency than you made on the yield.
1: Very well said, Brent. I know we're running out of time here, but I wanted to get one more question in from Oscar. Uh, Oscar, if you can hear me, please go ahead and unmike and ask your question for Brent.
2: Yes, I can hear you
1: guys. Thanks for having me, Brent. Welcome. Hope you're doing. Yep, Brent. Hope you're doing well. Hey, uh, Oscar. Quick question for you. I'm looking at the crude chart, and to me, that thing looks like it's about to rip. Could that be a catalyst? You think for the euro to go significantly lower here? Say, if we see crude topping a hundred or 105 dollars from here.
2: So it depends if if there's transmission to UK and and EU natural gas and other energy prices. Like, I don't think Brent crude is really the thing that matters as much. It's more the the nat gas and electricity stuff. Like, that's really where the problem is. So at the margin, I would say yes, because all energy prices kind of move in tandem and, and there is some substitution and things that go on. So like if Brent goes back to 125, it's definitely not good for Europe. Um, and also, it probably is symptomatic of global squeeziness in all the energy. Um, but I would say I'd be I, I would focus more on like European nat gas and European electricity than Brent specifically.
0: Fair.
1: Thank you. Sure. Boy, Brent, this was a terrific conversation. We had we had so many great questions here obviously lots of market professionals lots of folks on this twitter spaces uh who spend a lot of time looking at fx just terrific conversation terrific questions so first i want to thank everyone for joining us and and especially those uh who came up here and, and and asked some very insightful questions about what's happening in the fx space right now i'm mindful of the fact that we have a hard stop at 7 p.m but brent i want to let you close out this conversation by giving us some of your key takeaways folks, things that you'd like folks in the audience to remember from this conversation.
2: Sure. I think really the key is that there's probably a structural change happening in global trade that isn't going to be fixed overnight. It's not going to be fixed by spring 2023. And so specifically against the European currencies, I just think the dollar is going to stay strong. Uh, You know, there's different stories in Canada and Australia and all that, but specifically against the euro and, and against sterling, I just feel like the dollar is in the driver's seat and you'll know when something's changed. And so the default should just be lower euro, lower sterling until something changes. And and that day you'll probably know it.
1: Great summation. Nice and crisp. Thank you so much for joining us, Brent. Really enjoyed this conversation. We're going to have to do it again sometime soon. All right. Thanks, Ash. And thank you for listening, everyone. We'll be back soon. Okay. Thanks, everybody.